Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hi there. Thanks for joining us once again for another star-studded edition of Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and with us, as always, is Professor Fred Watson. Hi, Fred. Hey, how are you doing? I am well, thanks. How are you? <laughs> What's your name again? Oh, Andrew, yeah. Just call me Fred. Yeah, that'll do. It's Dave usually, isn't it? Fred Nurk, my mum always used to say. Fred yeah. Nurk. Yeah, that's right. Mm. The well-known Gunshow character. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, we've got a lot to talk about today, and we've got two double-bunger questions coming up, one about the expanding universe and a couple of people asking similar questions about Venus after last week's episode, so we'll try and uh, solve all their problems. Uh, we're also going to uh, look at the first all-female spacewalk in the wake of the passing of the first ever spacewalker, Alexei Leonov, and an update on the last mass extinction 66 million years ago. They think they know for sure almost maybe what <laughs> what caused it. Uh, so we'll, um, we'll focus on that as well. But, uh, Fred, first of all, the all-female spacewalk has finally happened no um, issues with with uh, spacesuits. No malfunctions. Uh, all good and proper, and and at last, it's uh, it's great news. It is great new- news, yeah. And it, I thought it was rather poignant that this, um, you know, this uh, we celebrate this milestone uh, only a, a week after we we were talking about the passing of Alexei Leonov, the the fir- very first spacewalker. Um, so. Um, he, I think, would be impressed that uh, for the first time, um, you know, there's been a, 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 an active spacewalk on the International Space Station, which was all about uh, actually doing some repair work on the outside of the space station, uh, but by two women rather than by um, either a mixed crew or an all-bloke crew, which is kind of what things were in the way in the days that he was uh, working in space. Um uh, so the two female space walkers, Christina Koch and Jessica Meyer, or Mia, um, they they are respectively um, uh, an electrical engineer and a scientist. Uh, Dr. Meyer has a, do- a doctorate in in marine biology, which is a long way from yeah, being on the outside of the. I say there wouldn't be too many whales and dolphins <laughs> and whatever else up there. Well, you never know what you might find up there. But, but uh... I suppose as a marine biologist, you can look down on the vastness of Earth and really take it in and get a, a good scope on, on what you really love to to work with. Yeah, that's right. Yes, she, you know, flying at 400 kilometres or 350 or thereabouts above the oceans would certainly give you a different perspective on marine biology. Um, so um, they their, their mission was... Uh, and it was actually uh, Friday last week, um, as we are recording this. Uh, their mission was to to replace something called a BCDU, which is 
It sounds just like a battery. It's a battery charge discharge unit. And oh, okay. that's what batteries do, <laughs> charge and discharge. So BCDU is a good name for it. And it was on the port six truss structure, just to give you your geography of the International Space Station. It's actually right on the on the you know on the end of the space station actually, um, where one of those huge uh, sets of solar panels is mounted. There's big sets of solar panels at either end of the main truss of the... It's also where they eject the space doogies. Apparently it is. Yes, there you go. <laughs> uh, the, somewhere they do that. That's right. Um, what, what's, I guess, uh, also interesting is that, and I don't think you and I spoke about this, that um, NASA last week unveiled their new spacesuits for the next lunar mission. Uh, oh, which is yes. I've actually seen uh, a fair bit of that on Instagram. People uh, yeah. have been posting pictures. They look spectacular. Yeah, they do. Uh, the, the, the new moonwalking suit, uh, which is called the XEMU, and that's <laughs> an, an acronym or a set of initials for the Exploration Extravehicular Mobility Unit, in other words, a, a suit for, for astronauts walking on the moon. Um, that uh, is a, a lot better, a much improved version of what the Apollo astronauts used. And in particular, uh, you know, the emphasis is on the word mobility because uh, they've changed the the structure of this suit and changed the fabrics and the materials used uh, to give much better mobility around the ankles and the knees and the, and actually the shoulders as well. Uh, so that we won't probably won't see as much when when the next set of astronauts walk on the moon, we won't see as much of that bunny hopping that we saw yeah. and, uh, and falling over. They all uh, fell over constantly. Yeah. Yeah, pretty well because the because the suit itself was not actually very flexible. Um, but what what is uh, also interesting about those new spacesuits is that uh, they can be made to fit anybody uh, because they're modular in design. So you can actually make one that will customize the fit to whoever's wearing it. And you might remember. Uh, I think it was back in March when we were talking about last talking about uh, an all women space uh, walk. Uh, the reason why it didn't happen uh, was because they didn't have suits of the right size. Uh, they didn't have two space suits the right size for 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 these two female astronauts. Um, it actually it was um, it was Anne McLean who was the uh, who was the uh, one of the participants. The other one, once again, was uh, was Christina Koch. But Anne McLean um, didn't had couldn't make the spacewalk because they didn't have a medium sized suit there uh, for her. So that uh, problem will will be fixed with the new uh, moonwalking suits, which can be made to fit anybody, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, um, get somebody little, my length into one. <laughs> little, yeah, little bit of sideline. Um, knowledge you probably weren't aware of, Fred, but uh, after the astronauts came back from the moon, they all became champion sack racers because they, they <laughs> developed perfect technique. 
<laughs> but um, they developed that in one sixth gravity, and yes. that's a lot easier than. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure it was. Uh, it's interesting talking about suits and and developing a suit for um, for moonwalking. Does that basically mean that they're going to have to develop a different suit for every different environment that the astronauts will ultimately face? I mean, if and when we eventually walk on Mars, the moon suit may not be. Oh no! Yeah. Um, right for that environment. That's absolutely right. Um, it will be quite a different uh, uh, construction, I think, for Mars. Um, the, the environment on Mars is different in the sense that, first of all, you've got an atmosphere there, even though the pressure is very low. Uh, it's it's uh, enough different from the vacuum on the moon that you, you, you would construct it differently. And of course, that means you've also got to have a suit that will survive the wind, it'll survive the particles of fine dust being blown around by the world that none of that happens on the moon mm. um so yeah it will be uh, different and in fact um you know the uh, when nasa unveiled the new uh, uh what's it called again the xemu suit for for moonwalkers uh, last week they also unveiled a new suit for uh, crew to wear during um, during takeoff and re-entry uh, because that is a, again a different kind of suit and for a start it's orange uh, which is just in case you know there's um, some something untoward happens either either going up or coming down it means you can find the astronaut very quickly because the orange suit actually stands out very very much in the landscape and probably useless uh, on Mars though uh, no that's right it wouldn't be a good <laughs> place to do that on Mars. You just blend into the background. Yeah, they'll have to come uh, up with a different colour. Uh, yeah, bright yellow probably. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> no, it's fantastic that they've uh, finally... Uh, and, and, you know, when, when you have a delay in, in a, a situation in space, regardless of, of what the vessel is, um, like they had that uh, that uh, all-females spacewalk planned, but then they had to stop it because of the wardrobe malfunction, and it took six months to get it going again. It's just yeah. not an easy fix, is it? No, that's right, and it, it has to wait for the you know the calendar bit to be right with um, the, the the personnel that are actually aboard the International Space Space Station at the time. Um, they did get the uh, they did get the privilege of a of a phone call from the president. Uh, uh, but I think that they lost a line somewhere along, <laughs> along the along the road there. So we only had time to ask one question, something like "How does it feel?" or <laughs> something like that. Anyway, oh, that, that that's what happens. I mean, is. communications is probably one of the most critical and yet fragile factors of space travel. So, Indeed, and we right. certainly witnessed that during um, the Apollo missions. Uh, and um, yeah, Australia was quite instrumental in, in, in enabling some of those communications, uh, particularly during Apollo 11. So uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's fascinating the way it all comes together. Uh, but That's yes, right. uh, we should uh, again congratulate the uh, the astronauts Jessica and Christina for their uh, their wonderful uh, historic uh, moment and um, yeah, something they'll probably never forget. Oh, but they won't. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, what did you do, Mum? What did you do? Oh, I, I replaced a battery charge discharge unit. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sure yeah. it was. <laughs> you know, parts need to be fixed. That's what it comes down to. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor. 
ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Space nuts. It's good to see our YouTube numbers ever expanding. We're almost halfway to a thousand, which would oh, be five. Good. Yeah, it would be five hundred, but we're not there yet. So we're we're at last count four hundred and ninety subscribers to our YouTube channel, which uh, is terrific. People are responding. I mean. Here's a little secret. Just subscribe. And if you don't want to listen on YouTube, you'd prefer to listen on your favorite platform. doesn't matter. I mean, the numbers still stack up. Shh. Anyway, uh, 490 subscribers on YouTube. You can find us at youtube.com slash C slash Space Nuts. If you would like to be a YouTube Space Nuts channel subscriber, we, uh, we're, we're targeting a 1,000. That's where we've got to go. Maybe I should subscribe. I wonder if I can. Yeah, I probably can. I'll, I'll, yeah. Maybe I already have. I have no idea, Fred. Let's move, <laughs> let's move on to our next topic. I'm, I'm subscribed to so much stuff online. I, I've forgotten half of it, and I, and because I don't like getting too much spam, I've, I've never bothered to sign up for any, you know, information via email. So I'm probably subscribed to all this stuff that I'll never ever see. Now uh, we, we've talked about this uh, very many times, and that is the um, the the. Uh, event that led to a mass extinction 66 million years ago. Um, we call it the dinosaur asteroid or whatever you like, but there's been a little bit of division in the scientific world as to what exactly caused all the planet's flora and fauna to be virtually wiped out. And um, some are saying, oh, no, it, was, it wasn't an asteroid, it was volcanic or it was a change in atmosphere or it was this, it was that. Um, have they finally figured it out, Fred? Well, it looks like it, yes. Um, so you're quite right. It, it has been 
you know, a matter of debate. And in fact, some have suggested it was a combination of events that the asteroid sort of shook up the Earth enough that some of these um, large-scale volcanoes were able to to, to penetrate through. Uh, but it does seem uh, now that it was the asteroid impact itself that gave rise to this mass extinction rather than something that took a lot longer to eventuate. Um, and what's been the smoking gun, if I can put it that way, <laughs> on this uh, story um, is some investigations of the the boundary um, where the the geological boundary where the event happened and you you might remember we we used to call that the Cretaceous tertiary boundary now now seems to be called the Cretaceous paleogene or paleogene boundary uh, which is probably being a bit more specific uh, as to what geological layer that happened in. Very but suspicious the, lettering too, KPG. Mm. That's, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, the, the, it was, in fact, the detection of iridium, uh, which is something that is really only found uh, in space objects, uh, iridium within that boundary uh, back in the late 1970s that, really gave rise to the whole theory of the mass extinction by an asteroid impact, that uh, the fact that iridium was seen in that boundary, which had dinosaurs below it and none above it, uh, the iridium was uh, taken to indicate something of extraterrestrial origin. Uh, and that theory is now really, I think, quite complete. We've got uh, evidence for a 15-kilometre diameter object hitting in the what is now the Gulf of Mexico at a place called Chicxulub, the Chicxulub crater. Uh, so that definitely happened. Uh, but what uh, remains, um, you know, uh, I, I guess, an, or has remained an open question is to how long after that, uh, the, the, the giant uh, um, lizards, <laughs> the dinosaurs, uh, how long they, you know, they remained uh, in, in, in active uh, life. Uh, and whether it was a kind of more instantaneous uh, event. And so uh, the, the, the story now turns to, yes, the same uh, geological boundary, but uh, some new evidence that has come from a cave, actually, in the Netherlands. Um, and it, it, it's, uh, there is apparently some, uh, some very good deposits there. It's uh, scientists from Yale University, uh, who have led this work, and in fact, um, um, uh, the author, the lead author, is Michael Hennehan. I think that's how his name is pronounced. Uh, he says that in this cave, uh, an especially thick layer of clay from the immediate aftermath of the impact accumulated, which is really quite rare, uh, because so much sediment was laid down there at once, it meant we could extract enough f fossils to analyze and were able to capture the transition. And the, the bottom line is that uh, the transition is very sudden. Uh, he says, for years, people have suggested that there would be a decrease in ocean pH. And of course, pH is a measure of acidity. Uh, the lower it is, the more acid the water is. Uh, a decrease in ocean pH because the meteor impact hit sulfur-rich rocks and caused the raining out of sulfuric acid. But until now, no one had any direct evidence to show this happened. And so what they've done is they've analysed, actually, it's, a, it's the fossils of a, a tiny plankton uh, in, in this layer of clay 
and can see how you know how the um, the, the fossil how the the, the, the plankton changed uh, in its abundance uh, and basically um, uh, he says that before uh, before the impact event uh, they couldn't detect any increasing acidification of the oceans but in the layers above that there was this immediate uh, um, you know uh, signal of a much higher acidity uh, in the oceans um, the bottom line is that that then would prevent you know the um, the these plankton from from growing and uh, they were basically wiped out effectively at the same time as the dinosaurs and and they're at the you know they're at the bottom of the food chain as well these things uh, so the whole ecosystem collapses very very quickly uh, apart from the devastating effect on the atmosphere that the impact itself had so this is more yet more evidence that that was a very rapid change in the uh, in the atmosphere of the earth uh, caused a very rapid change in the basically the the, the, the flora and fauna of the earth uh, and really pins the uh, the responsibility for all that on the asteroid rather than the volcanoes that people have su suspected might have also contributed aha uh -huh. well there it is um, yeah I, I the funny thing is when when we uh, started looking at the possibility that it wasn't actually directly a result of the asteroid and we were looking at other things like volcanic eruptions and atmospheric change because of that etc etc um, a, a lot of people in the media over the course of the, the next year or so still referred to the asteroid as being the smoking gun and now it's all come full circle and that is in fact the truth and <laughs> yeah seems to be that's right so even or in their inaccuracy the journalists around the world have been spot on yeah, all, all, that's right. All the evidence is pointing to that. That's mm. exactly right. Now, I meant you, you mentioned iridium, the iridium layer, and yeah. found no evidence of dinosaurs above it. So does that mean when paleontologists start sort of kicking around the dirt looking for uh, evidence of past life, that they look for that iridium layer and they know that that is the, the, the line of demarcation, if you like? Yes, that's right. It's it's you know it, that iridium layer is just one of the many many layers that are in the the rocks of the earth. They they they, they come and go in in, in their intensity in different places. But the thing about the iridium is that it was effectively global. Uh, so in fact, I think it was first um, investigated in Italy. Um, I've got a photograph of the two scientists who did that: a father and son team. Uh, their surname was Alvarez. It was. Um, um, uh, Lewis was the father and I think is it David or Michael I can't remember I think it might be David the son uh, they, they there's a famous photograph of them standing beside this geological uh, uh, I think it's in a quarry actually in in Italy uh, and that was where it was discovered and identified but it, it's it's in many many other places as well and the fact that it's global tells you that the effect of whatever it was, this extraterrestrial source of iridium, it happened. It it affected the whole world basically. Mm, okay. Did we did we ever give that asteroid a name? Uh, no, I don't think it has got a name. I think it's usually called a dinosaur killing asteroid. But you could call. Usually, it would be called the Chicxulub event. You yeah. know, the the actual impact itself. Mm. So an anonymous asteroid that made a big change here on planet Earth. Yep, there it is. All bets are off. The asteroid did it. Yep. And <laughs> paid it. the ultimate price for it too. 
Uh, you're listening to the Space Nuts podcast, episode 176. I'm Andrew Dunkley with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Once again, Fred, uh, if people would like to join us uh, on Patreon, uh, they can do that through our Patreon account, patreon.com slash space nuts. If you are so willing to part with a few dollars a month to contribute to the Space Nuts podcast, you can do that. We've got 62 patrons now, Fred. It's just inching up week by week, which is lovely. So thank you for your contribution. It is uh, much appreciated and it is going to a good cause. It is the Hugh Drury Superannuation Fund. <laughs> Hugh being a producer. Hugh being our producer, no, it's um, it's being used to uh, to keep us afloat basically, and uh, yeah, every um, every dollar you put in is is greatly appreciated, and we uh, we think um, we think you're wonderful. Uh, Patreon dot com slash Space Nuts is the website if you want to pop along and just take a look. Uh, it's not for everybody, and we're not making it a a thing. But if it's something you'd like to do, then wonderful, we appreciate it very much. Now to some questions, Fred. Now this is this is interesting. We've got four questions from f- three people via two presenters in one segment. <laughs> I don't know good. how I work that out, but uh, we'll go to the first question. This one comes from Chris. I don't know any more than that, except that it's Chris. I don't know where Chris is from, but his name is Chris. So hi, Chris. Thanks for the question. His question is about the expanding universe. I love your show. Always been a big space nut and science nerd myself. I have many questions regarding the expanding universe. In the brief amount of reading I've done, it appears that the Hubble constant has changed over the lifespan of the universe. It also appears that gravity is a major influence. With the universe expanding and that expansion increasing, does that mean that the parsec unit of measure is also changing? Or would it stay the same as other measures also change, i.e. the AU, as in the Earth is expanding away from the Sun? In other words, would the distance uh, to a star measured in parsecs remain constant as the distance measured in light years increases? Moving on from the idea of a uniform expansion, is it possible that the universe might be expanding at different rates or even contracting in areas based upon the local gravity environment? And the Hubble constant is not constant, but actually variable. Regards, Chris. Oh, I love this question. I love the, both <laughs> of the questions. They yeah. just, you know, it makes you really, you, it turns your brain upside down. It does. It does. Um, okay, so the first it's a really good question. You know, is the is the parsec uh, as a uh, as a unit of measure changing? Uh, let me just explain what a parsec is. It, it's actually how we measure distances um, in interstellar space. So, if you're measuring distances for the planets, you can do that more directly. We understand from the way planets orbit around the sun. Uh, what distances are involved, and that was what Johannes Kepler sorted out at the beginning of the 17th century. But for the distances of the stars, um, we use a unit. In common parlance, we use the light year, but astronomers actually use the parsec. And a, a, a distance of one parsec corresponds to an object 
that has a parallax of one arc second, of one second of arc. Now, a second of arc is a very small angle. It's one 3,600th of a degree. It's the size of a, a dime or a dollar coin held up at uh, five kilometres or, or three miles or thereabouts. Uh, it's a very, very small angle indeed. Um, so, uh, But what does parallax mean? It means that uh, you look at the way the position of an object seems to change as the Earth goes around the sun in its orbit. Um, and so the sun, the Earth's orbit is 300 million kilometres in diameter. Um, we actually don't take the full diameter, though. The, the parallax is defined as measured from the null position. Um, in other words, when the sun, the Earth is kind of directly in line with the sun when you're looking at the object in question. I'm not explaining this very well. Uh, let, me, let me go back and do it a different way. If you imagine uh, the uh, position of a star seen from one side of the Earth's orbit and then a year later, sorry, six months later from the other side of the Earth's orbit, that gives you twice the radius of the Earth's orbit as being the, the baseline. And we take the radius of the Earth's orbit as the baseline to define a parallax of one arc second, in other words, a parsec. I don't know whether you get that, but anyway. <laughs> my, my, my brain just went it's, numb. It's, it's the, so it's the, it's the angle subtended from the star by the radius of the Earth's orbit, okay? Right. That's, you know, if you imagine yourself now on the star, looking back at the Earth's orbit, the radius of, of the Earth's orbit is one arc second as seen from the star. That's how you define a parsec, the distance of a parsec. Now, we um, astronomers think that's too hard for people to get their heads around. So really? You traditionally, think <laughs> traditionally... <laughs> We've converted it into light years, and it's about 3.3 light years, 3.26, I think, is the number, light years in a parsec. And a light year, of course, is the distance light travels in one year. It's 9.5 trillion kilometres. But it's not a distance. A light year is not something we actually use in astronomy. The fundamental measurement is in parsecs. And that, uh, so that just coming back to the question, does the parsec as a unit of measure change? And the answer is no, it doesn't, because that's the distance that we measure. It's the, the distance of the object that's changing, and whether you're measuring that in parsecs or light years, and a light year, remember, is just de derived from a parsec because there's no way we can actually measure a light year. You need somebody with a stopwatch and uh, one side of, uh, of uh, you know the object uh, or a distance a distant object and somebody on Earth with another stopwatch. We can't do that. That's impossible. So light years don't really exist as a fundamental unit. But parsecs do, and they can be measured. So um, just uh, hang on a, hang on a minute, <laughs> because a man's just walked in with a vacuum cleaner. He's a good friend of mine, and he, I should hang a note on the door saying recording a podcast, but never mind. Fred's it's all right. doing a vacuum experiment. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Well, actually, we've just done the podcast in a vacuum. Yeah, well, well, I, we all do it in a vacuum, don't we? There's certainly a vacuum of anything intelligible coming out. So, um, sorry, going back to, uh, to Chris's question, um, we the measuring measuring distances in parsecs 
we, we can only do that for objects within our own galaxy directly. And in fact, only out to a distance of, you know, something like a thousand light years or 3000 light years thereabouts is as far as we can measure. There's a spacecraft um, called Gaia, which is measuring these distance with distances by parallax with exquisite precision. But that's all within our own galaxy to, to work out the distance to other galaxies and hence to look at the expansion of the universe, you have to use secondary distance indicators. And usually we use variable stars called Cepheid variables. They give us the distance to the nearest galaxies. Um, and then we use other factors beyond that to work out what the distance scale is. So um, the, the universe is expanding, but our yardsticks aren't. The yardsticks that we use, and principally it's the parsec, uh, that is not expanding. I hope okay. that I hope that uh, answers the question. Uh, it was a very garbled account. But let's take tackle the second part of... Part two, about whether or not it's all expanding all the time or if parts of it aren't expanding as fast or maybe contracting because of the effects of gravity. Yes, that's right. So Chris's question, just you've paraphrased it well, but let me read it. Is it possible that the universe might be expanding at different rates or even contracting in areas based upon the local gravity environment? And the, the answer to that is probably yes, um, because we know that we are not looking at the whole universe when we uh, use our big telescopes to, to probe deep into space. Um, there are, there's a, at least one horizon beyond which we can't see, and that's the look back time to the Big Bang. Um, that means that you've got this sort of curtain, I often call it the cosmic wallpaper, this background, uh, which everything that we can measure is in front of. And certainly up, excuse me, up to that look back time, 13.8 billion years, uh, the universe seems to be expanding at the same you know, the same way in all directions, it's isotropic. So the expansion that we measure seems to be the case for all of the observable universe, the bit of the universe that we can observe. But some scientists have argued that the universe might go on forever. It's much bigger than we can see. And there may be other parts of it that are actually contracting, exactly as Chris has suggested. So it is possible, um, but to all intents and purposes, uh, the only thing we can measure is the universe that we can observe, and that seems to be expanding ever more rapidly uh, with the um, you know with the, the Hubble constant changing as we go into the future. If I could add my uh, own piece of ludicrous theory to this, uh, imagine our universe is a balloon and it's expanding, and there are other universes around ours that are also expanding and they're pushing into each other. That would stand to reason that in some parts of our universe it's expanding, in other parts it may be contracting because of the pressure from an external universe expanding on us. Or Yes, um, that's, that's assuming that um, external universes can have some impact on our own universe, and that's certainly not clear. Uh, it is possible that that's true, and people are looking at things like the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, the cosmic wallpaper in great detail to see if there's any evidence of, of this sort of pushing and shoving. But if you've, if you've got um, another, all, all the other universes in the multiverse in the fifth or sixth or seventh dimension, um, uh, it may not be that they would have any influence on our own, on our own universe. The one hint that maybe they do 
is that gravity is such a weak force compared with the other fundamental forces of nature. Some people have suspected that that's because gravity leaks out into some sort of hyperspace uh, and that might then imp impinge on other universes. But this is all very much in the realm of speculation. Of course, we're assuming that other universes are separate for our, from our own. Um, there are other theories that they all overlap. Yeah, and that maybe we're all just looking at one universe, but it's got different bits, some of which are expanding, some are contracting, maybe some have different uh, fundamental physical constants, uh, sort of, you know, along the lines that Chris is suggestion, mm. suggesting. So it's a good suggestion. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris. Great question. <laughs> really good question. Loved it. Let's move on to uh, the question of Venus. We've had a couple of people respond to last week's episode about Venus. One of those, and these are similar questions, but I'll do them separately so we can tackle one and then the other because there might be a different angle on the answers. This one comes from Ash Rose. Uh, awesome podcast. I only just discovered it and look forward to catching up with um, all episodes. No, sorry, the last one you listened to was the end. <laughs> so what you're hearing now is just a myth. Um, question. Is the fact that both Mars and Venus both lack magnetic fields the reason why they both became hostile to garnering life, maintaining water and continental plates? Venus has uh, had a gas explosion, much like what we've seen in the Siberian traps. Mars once had a strong magnetosphere keeping its atmosphere intact. Is it down to having two, uh, having the right mix of heavy metal cores? Okay, so are you going to go on to the other Venus question and lump them all together? Why not? Uh, this one yeah. comes from uh, Alan Lang. Uh, yeah. Alan asks, why does Venus have no magnetic field, retrograde rotation, no plate tectonics, and much less water than Earth? Because they didn't pay their taxes. Uh, I would argue that these uh, features cause the runaway greenhouse effect and volcanism is uh, a byproduct of the lack of plate tectonics. Thank you for your show and your sister programs. He's talking about space-time with Stuart Gary, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, I Look, I think these are both really interesting questions, and they kind of probe the limits of knowledge, really, because um, we, in, in some ways we know more about Mars than Venus in this regard. Um, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field. Uh, there is some evidence that, once it did, because um, along the, the, there are places where there are hints that you know of, of magnetism that may be the result of plate tectonics that shut down. Uh, so you've got magnetism occurring along the boundaries of the of the tectonic plates, and it, the reason why we think the the plate tectonics shut down on Mars is is because of this. It, it's uh, it's not got the right Amount to, it's not really so much the right mix of heavy metals in the core. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's the it's the mass of the core. Uh, Mars probably does have a metallic core, but it's a much smaller body than the Earth. It's only half the diameter of the Earth, and so the suspicion is that it's cooled much more rapidly, and that uh, that that has shut down plate tectonics. Now, um, the the evidence of the lack of plate tectonics is not just what we're what we can look at. It also comes from the Insight lander, which is sitting on Mars's surface with a very sensitive seismometer, which is certainly picking up Mars quakes, but they're not uh, at the level that you would expect if there were any kind of plate tectonics going on. So that activity seems to be 
completely shut down. Uh, Mars seems to have a, a, long, a single continuous crust. Uh, that's borne out as well by the fact that it's got this gigantic volcano, Olympus Mons, 27 kilometres high, which su suggests that um, the, 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 the crust of Mars stayed stationary over a hotspot down in the mantle of Mars, uh, allowing that volcano to build up to its current height. Unlike the, the equivalent volcanoes on Earth, which is the shield volcanoes in Hawaii, which um, are dotted along uh, uh, you know, the, the, the direction in which the, the continental plate or the, the crustal plate was moving over the hotspot that formed them. So that's all sort of fairly clear. So Mars, um, it seems to be the small size of Mars that has caused it to lose its atmosphere uh, or lose most of its atmosphere because of the shutdown in plate tectonics, not replenishing the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, shutting down the carbon cycle, in fact. Now, Venus is a, is a different a different object. Um, we don't actually know for certain whether Venus has plate tectonics or not. The assumption is that it doesn't. But it does have more volcanoes on its surface than any other object in the solar system. We think they're all extinct, uh, but the fact that it has this uh, clearly a past history of extreme volcanism uh, suggests that perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps it, it did have plate tectonics, which have now shut down. Um, but the reason for that is less obvious than it is with Mars, because Venus is the same size as the Earth. Mm. Uh, and it does indeed have this runaway greenhouse effect um, on the, um, you know, on, on the in the atmosphere of the planet, a very hot temperature, 450 or 460 degrees Celsius. And the absence is exactly as Ash says of a magnetic shield. Uh, no, nothing to shield the atmosphere from this uh, bombardment by this, the subatomic particles of the sun. Um, so I, I think Venus is more of a puzzle than Mars is. We, we've got some evidence, and you and I have talked about this, that perhaps Mars was once, sorry, perhaps Venus was once warm and wet. Uh, people have modelled the atmosphere of Venus and uh, suggested that perhaps in the distant past it, it could have supported life. Um, what happened to change that, we don't know. Uh, it, and we don't know too much about the core of Venus either. Um, because of the fact that it doesn't seem to be able to sustain plate tectonics, unless plate tectonics are ongoing and we're just not seeing the evidence of it. Uh, a lot of the problem is the fact that Venus has got this very thick and opaque atmosphere around it. So the only way you can really sense what's going on is by having radar measurements. And for that, you need to put spacecraft in orbit around around Venus. Yeah, and, and uh, our observation capability of Venus is very limited. Visually, it's it's just this big yellow faffy thing um radar is fairly limited and putting something on the surface is not going to survive long because of the extreme heat it, it, there's just so many factors that make venus uh, an ongoing mystery yes a difficult planet to explore that's mm. right so um we you know uh, the hope is that we will as time goes on we'll learn more about venus um we spoke was it last week about the uh, the lava flows on Venus that turn out to be granitic rather than basaltic, and that's suggesting that there wasn't much water around when those lava flows uh, took took place. So, yeah, great questions, uh, which we really are at the frontiers of knowledge. We, we're not really capable yet of answering them. Uh, we can hazard a guess in the case of Mars, but Venus, as we've said, is much more of a mystery.
Okay. Uh, and thank you to Ash and Alan for sending in those questions about Venus, and uh, we appreciate it. It's always good to try and investigate new possibilities and uh, open our minds to uh, to what you're thinking. So um, thanks again. Um, what was the name of your cleaner? <laughs> well, um, I, that's a really a poignant question because uh, Reuben, who was our uh, Reuben, was our cleaner. Um, uh, for a number of years, I got to know him really well. He's a Chilean gentleman. He was um, uh, full of full of beans, full of life, but sadly passed away about two months ago. Oh, I was at his sorry. funeral. It was very, very sad. Uh, so um, we've uh, I haven't had time yet to form a relationship with our new cleaner, uh, who <laughs> no doubt uh, is feeling embarrassed because he walked in on a podcast, but he doesn't know that. But oh, doesn't. Well, the, the reason I ask is because um, I was just going to recognise him, but uh, um, I remember a, a mate of mine I uh, worked in radio with years and years ago uh, used to work for one of the stations in Canberra, and they had a cleaner that was, used to come in every afternoon. Now, they told him time and time again, don't go in there, that's the live-to-air studio, yeah, but he just didn't did. get it. So he just used to burst in... <laughs> <laughs> while they were on air, whether the microphone was on or not, he became uh, a part of the show. Of and course. That's my is. inspiration for leaving stuff in. Uh, that story, I thought to myself, well, that I hope that happens to me one day. <laughs> and there it is. Well, you get yeah, I, you I tend to do that. If people walk in in the radio station and I'm on air with the mic open, I just let it go because it's just it just adds to the fun. So um, I love that story. It uh, also reminds me of a story of a new radio station that was using uh, touchscreens for the first time some 20 or 30 years ago up in Queensland, and a cleaner came in and used, used spray on the screen and gave it a wipe, and they were off air for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's an absolute ripper. Uh, one more thing before we finish up. We have a Space Nuts shop, Fred. Oh, my, well, I didn't know that. That's a, an astonishing If you thing. go to, uh, I've got to find the URL now, uh, bites, dot com slash Space Nuts. You'll right. find all our episodes there as well. But if you scroll down, um, you can contact us via that. We have a, a communications satellite on our – no, we don't. We have a um, an interface where you can ask questions via our website. But we've uh, we've got products. So if you want – we get a lot of people saying, gee, I'd love to get a Space Nuts T-shirt. We have them. They are there. You can buy a Space Nuts T-shirt from the Space <laughs> Nuts shop. You can also – Fred doesn't know this. You can also buy Cosmic Chronicles. Oh, well, that's good news. Yep. There are links um, to your books on our on our page. Uh, there are also links to my books. Uh, I've been looking since they've been on there. No clicks. But, <laughs> but, so uh, I've just yeah. tried to – I've just um, clicked on the website that you've just given me, and I've got a big yellow screen that says, Warning, Potential Security Risk Ahead. That's funny. <laughs> I did the same thing. It says your, your connection is not private. I'll, I'll get on to our producer. He's obviously <laughs> not using the Patreon money. Yes, to keep to keep the the licenses updated. Exactly. So anyway, we'll get that fixed. But yeah, yeah. you can you can log on there and um, and buy a product if you so desire. Um, and uh, yeah, the links to all the books and where you can get them. And um, yeah, there it good is. Stuff. That's uh, you'll probably sell um, nearly a million via the website, Fred. I would imagine. Get yourself oh, a bestseller. So. Um, uh, a million would would cheer me up very, very much. Would cheer me up too. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you as always, Fred. It's been a great pleasure. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Good to talk to you too, and um, we'll do Space Nuts again next week, probably. I, I do hope so. And thank you for listening, as always. We really appreciate the feedback. Keep it coming, and we'll catch you next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.